Are you hesitating to take the next step in your e-commerce journey? Founder Plus has you covered with proven frameworks tailored to your business needs for fast results, a supportive community of over 30,000 like-minded entrepreneurs and weekly live mentorship sessions. Founder Plus is your key to success. Try Founder Plus today for just $1 for seven days and start building your dream business with confidence. You can visit founder.com forward slash start dollar trial or click the link in the description to claim your trial. Hey, Founder Fam, before we dive into another incredible conversation, I want to share something really special with you. Whether you're just joining us or you've been following us since the beginning, you've been a critical part of our community working to change entrepreneurial education. I started Founder almost a decade ago with the mission to provide entrepreneurs access to the world's greatest business leaders. Our goal was to break down barriers to entrepreneurial education, and that's taken us on a journey from Founder Magazine to this podcast and beyond, and today marks the next step in that journey, Founder Plus. I'm proud to introduce you to Founder Plus, which is an all-access pass to each of our online courses and programs and their proven frameworks for success. It puts every strategy we've compiled from world-class instructors at your fingertips while connecting you to a global network of like-minded entrepreneurs. Founder Plus will take your business to the next level for today and tomorrow. So whether you've just joined our family or you've watched us grow from humble beginnings, we're really thrilled to have you join us in this exciting new phase of making the founder brand and this company the world's best entrepreneurial community to launch and grow your business. So finally, before we get into today's episode, I'm inviting you to come back, check out Founder Plus and go to founder.com forward slash membership. I'm really excited, guys. This is an incredible new evolution of entrepreneurial education, and our mission is really to get as many of these founders that we interview to teach and also give back on the Founder Plus platform and really go more in depth with the knowledge and the experiences and the lessons learned that they're sharing all in Founder Plus. So guys, please go check it out if you're enjoying these interviews. That's it from me. I hope you enjoy this episode. Now let's jump in. This is episode number 432 with Guy Pearson of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human. Who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. The Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Steve Case, Gary Vee, Sophia Amoroso, Robert Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Pearson is a former accountant and founder of Ignition, the world's first client management and commerce platform for professional services. In 2013, he launched Ignition to help simplify and speed up the transaction process for industries like his. Today, Ignition has helped facilitate more than 1 million client engagements and over 2 billion in client payments. Ignition has offices in Australia, Canada, New Zealand, Philippines, South Africa, US, and the UK, with over 170 employees globally. Please welcome to the podcast, Guy Pearson. 
Hey, Founder Fam, before we jump into today's conversation, I'd love to take a minute to tell you about this episode's sponsor, Sales Master AI. When iOS 14 hit, a lot of us didn't really know how to respond. And at Founder, part of our response has been turning to trusted experts like SMAI to lead the way forward. SMAI has really helped us drive the performance of our cost per acquisition to really acquire customers on Facebook. So do you want your ads to work better? Then if so, salesmaster.ai can help your business engage more buyers automatically using AI that places your ads in real time in front of audiences most likely to convert. So you can really increase the performance post iOS 15 and take the guesswork out of growth. Head to the link in our show notes to learn more now. Okay, now on to today's episode. The first question we ask everyone that comes on is, how did you get your job, aka how did you find yourself doing the work you're doing today? Long story short, I'm a recovering CPA or accountant, depending on where people are located around the world. Um, And I was running my own firm, so I started one of the first cloud accounting firms in the world uh, in Australia called Interactive Accounting, now Sendar. Um, and I got very jealous of my clients who ran software companies and or e-commerce businesses. So they had System of Truth, so whether it be Shopify or something like Recurly, they had developers and they built kind of how the business ran based off the transaction that took place with their customers or their clients. Um, and that automated marketing, you know, welcome emails, uh, onboarding, uh, fact checkers, anything you like as part of the process and they got paid uh, instantly. Now, for whatever reason, um, accountants and lawyers, et cetera, being you know, smart folks, uh, didn't have a system that did all of that, particularly not online in uh, 2011. And I got very frustrated with the state of affairs and decided I'd uh, try my hand being my fifth company at Ignition and learning lots of learnings and the others up until that point to try and solve you know, uh, commerce, if you like, or uh, commerce and client relationships, professional services firms. And we went to market specifically targeting bookkeeping and accounting firms. And that's kind of how I ended up here. Uh, I've never worked for a software company outside of Ignition or one of my other ventures. Um, I've never worked at a company this size before period. So uh, it's all, all learning to me all the time. But uh, that's how I got from there to here. Got you. And uh, when did you start practice Ignition? I'm an accountant, so back of a, a beer coaster in 2011 outside of a pub after being at an accounting trade show would probably be ideation, uh, but we didn't have anyone on the team or charge any customers or have a product in market till sort of 2013. And when did you first kind of realise that entrepreneurship was the way forward? Was it when you said you were jealous of seeing your clients uh, running e-commerce business or software businesses or...? I was jealous of their system. So I, I started my first business when I was 25. So that was 2009. Um, I'd made the decision uh, in 08 um, that I was going to uh, get off into entrepreneurship. And a lot of that had been spawned on um, through experience working with some of Australia's best entrepreneurs as their accountant in the last sort of accounting firm that I worked at. Um, so um, I probably won't mention their names. People who started large, successful listed companies, we would look after, say, three of the four founders or people who started large retail chains or bought them. Uh, we were looking after those folks. And so I got to meet these amazing entrepreneurs. And my boss was typically uh, on their board of their operating company as well as being kind of their private uh, accountant, if you like. And so I got fairly close uh, with these folks. But what I realized is, you know, they were all about 
wealth creation, people uh, changing the world. Uh, and my boss was very much of the same elk, um, which is very different to my, my prior experience. So they're great operators. They just weren't entrepreneurial and, and thinking about um, other things. We focused on tax at, the, at my prior firm. So a combination of having a great boss who literally encouraged me to try everything, put my hand up for things to change them if I didn't like the way they were, that's how the business ran. Um, or the way we did certain workflows within the firm or just even how we communicated with clients uh, and having those clients who were super engaging characters who were trying to solve problems and just somewhat appeal. But the combo of those two kind of was just like a, uh, a flame being lit. Um, and I think it was more entrepreneurship with the opportunities I had at the firm that I worked at, which then turned into, well, I've learned how to run an accounting firm now with the various pieces and experience that I've had, I, I want to go do that. And I want to advise entrepreneurs because that's what I love to do. Um, and so it was probably, a, I don't know how old, how old probably 22, 23. Um, I would say prior to that, I think my goal was to be like the, you know, an accountant that had a lovely life. Um, uh, you know, that's what I studied and what I worked out from high school. But um, I think that's uh, was sort of an inflection point about wanting to actually try and put a bit of a dent in the world. And when you were 24, you turned down a huge partnership opportunity. Can you tell us about that and, and how it informed who you are today? So that same place I was working with, the, the boss that I still looked up to but looked up to at the time, um, greatly, uh, that firm had offered myself uh, a path to partnership in a reasonably short time frame. I think I've been there for three years, or 24 years of age. Um, I turned it down because they were going to be a part of a listed conglomerate. And so... I love the firm. I love the clients. I didn't like the speed at which they were adopting new tech. Um, and they're probably more slightly more on the, like as a whole, more on the wealth management side of accounting. So looking after um, folks uh, that perhaps had built businesses, already had established businesses. I was really keen to help the next generation of entrepreneurs. Like that's what excited me. And so all those things um, lined up. And I also wanted to take a, a big leave of absence to go travel the world. So it was sort of like, you know, okay, I've been offered this position. This is great. But if I'm going to leave now, it's probably the time I've learned what I need to learn to start my own business. And if I wanted to do a trip, whether I was going to be a partner in a firm or start my own, like now is the time. And so everything kind of just all came together at once. And I've finished all of my vacations and all those sorts of things. Um, I don't know. It, it felt very natural, um, but that was kind of the defining moment and how I ended up you know, kicking off my own firm and I guess becoming my ambassador at a fairly young age and um, interesting watching people's reactions to a young man show up in jeans and a T-shirt with a hat on, uh, talking about cloud software, uh, particularly in accounting, uh, when perhaps the stereotype of the partner they dealt with or the boss that had a previous firm might have been 20 years my senior, perhaps more formally dressed uh, with manila folders and and those sorts of things. So it was, um, I don't know, it was a great part of the journey and and. I don't know, I feel like it all just came about fairly naturally. And so can you tell us for our listeners a little bit more about what Practice Ignition does? Um, we're a client engagement and commerce platform and sort of defining a new category. So for my mother, um, I would describe us as Shopify for services. Um, really helps to kind of set the tone of we look after, after how you get a customer. So contract, if you like, uh, and revenue management and payments. And then all the data points in there can drive what happens next. Um, and so we kind of sit at the top of, let's say, a services business, contract revenue payments, revenue insights, marketing insights, 
and then we connected to task management billing uh, being say zero or QuickBooks. Uh, and then we collect the payments um, as part of our process, but we, we sort of tie that in and automate all your accounts receivable. Um, main benefits are efficiency, scalability, um, time saving, and you get paid for every dollar of contract revenue that you, you put out, um, which is very different to how a traditional services business uh, might run. Um, anecdotally or statistically, accountants uh, take on average 90 days to get paid once they issue an invoice. So um, we kind of scrap that and bring that forward. Um, as most people don't have a problem paying their trusted advisor, it's more the admin and process and the, um, you know, perhaps forgetting about it, those sorts of things. So we just make it easier and, and make it a lot more transparent between the two parties about what they're paying for as well. And in the early months, what were some of the challenges when you started? Really, I mean, when we started, we, we weren't able to charge. So like we, we had to build the billing engine after we built the product. Um, We'd gone from having two amazing contractors build the MVP uh, through to uh, trying to hire a team. Uh, and that was you know, challenging to try and find, you know, one or two unicorns who could kind of do everything technical and I would take on all the business side. Um, but managed through that and then raising capital. Um, we were at a time in Oz where I think we had, Australia for those listening, I think we had three venture firms who had $20 million each to deploy over three years. Uh, between them so like sorry 20 million so 60 million dollars between them uh so if you weren't something sexy or weren't something that their other customers or uh, sorry people then you were using um which not many of them spoke to accountants regularly uh it was very very hard to try and get that message across the line very thankful to have um yeah uh folks like craig winkler so one of the founders of myb and zero uh second largest shareholder for a while jump on deck um, and and literally anchor our angel round um, alongside a few others like Ron Lesh from BGL. Um, and then our, our uh, seed round was led by Real Ventures, who's uh, Canada's largest seed fund. Uh, we are still there on the Australian investment and they just had a thesis on the, the fact that none of the partners like dealing with their accountant and that needed to change. And so there needed to be a piece of software for that. So those days was always hard. Um, mostly because we'd only ever get 12 months of runway, so 12 months of cash. We double or triple sort of all key core metrics. We try and hire great people and you obviously have to try and front load that hiring to try and get a benefit as you think about your cash runway running out. And when did you know it was going to take off? That's a really good question. I feel like every time the entrepreneur sits there, there's usually not one moment. It feels like a lot of little steps. Um, I think for us, the the moment that we started selling subscriptions overseas um, was probably like okay it's not just an Australian problem um, and you know I love love the country I'm from but we're a big island in the middle of nowhere we have to sell a lot of software to sort of build a really big business and make a dent in the world and so we had put four pe- three people overseas when we had less than ten people to try and prove that we could grow those markets you know did we just have these early innovators that were jumping on the software because they love what that we did and was the rest of the market like that or not? Um, were there any product requirements we needed to do to be relevant in those markets? Um, and so I think once we kind of broke the back of that, which would have been 2016, 2017, when I started being asked to be a keynote speaker overseas and talk about how our firm runs in the future, like all those things started to signal that we were kind of on that way. Um, you know, execution's always super hard as well, like to follow through. Um, but the 
the fact that people were resonating globally, which meant that the market size was huge, um, was probably hit home in about uh, 2015, 2016, and we raised the Series A in 2017. So those periods through there was kind of the some of the most trying, uh, but I think also the point where we figured out that we were um, sort of bound to accelerate and grow a whole lot bigger. And when it comes to kind of, I guess, like, your methodology uh, for scaling and, and and people, like can you talk to us about how you, you know, you talked about hiring in the early days and it was tough. Like what, what, is, your, what is your process now for hiring and building a great team? We, we now have internal talent. We're about just shy of 200 people. We have um, internal talent acquisition uh, team. So one, one person here and one person in North America. Um, so it looks after AMA and EMEA and, and APAC out of here. Um, we do a mix of job listings and then uh, outbound uh, reach outs to folks who look like they're a lookalike for, for the job descriptions that we've got. I'm very consciously trying to make sure that we're sort of sharing all the good things that it is to to work to get from working at Ignition. Um, and I think the, the process has changed from, in a lot of cases, people coming up to me at a trade show you know, or a road show or some form of physical event around accounting technology industry and basically saying they wanted a job um, and they weren't enjoying where they were working and, and literally having a one-hour chat and then maybe one other person have a 20-minute interview and, and offer them a job. So uh, all the key stakeholders and a peer as well as the talent acquisition person um, kind of put them through a process and then I'm still the last uh, 30 minutes of any hiring decision. Sometimes it doesn't happen. Like if I'm away, I, I don't want to be a blocker, but um, what it's allowed us to do is I maybe have, you know, we've probably hired 50 people this year. So, you know, I've probably had 80, 80 conversations. We've hired 50 of those people. So by the time it gets to me, it's skills-based testing done, uh, fit, uh, can they do the day job? And my job is culture, culture fit and making sure that um, they're a good addition to the team and a good balancing out of perhaps the rest of the team that are on. So it's scaled quite well. And, and given the amount of time, I'm just really like, we take our values really seriously. So want to make sure that's always held out and for whatever reason I'm, I'm chosen, I guess, perhaps rightfully so as the CEO, as the uh, ambassador of those values. Yeah, wow, that's really interesting around still to this day, you're still weighing in on every hire. Why? Uh, I think most of the values are core to us. Like we, we've built a really special, unique culture um, at Ignition. Um, people kind of care about the mission. But in addition, they care about each other. And I wouldn't go so far as to say it's the family because it's still a place of work. But uh, people very much view it as a team. So whether or not you want to uh, learn that to sports or perhaps an orchestra or another group of people that line up to do great things together, um, us achieving our goal as a team is, is more important than an individual achieving greatness. Um, so making sure that that still holds true is probably the most um, true part of what I bring in and then making sure that people are curious. Um, it's sort of the two things that tend to uh, make for a great team of recognition and two things that, um, I don't know, the team still feels, <laughs> my, my talent acquisition team wants to also tell me I'm a great closer, but I actually don't think it's because I close or sell ignition. I think it's because unlike other processes, they get to speak to me, whereas they don't speak to the boss at any other job they go for. Um, so I think it, it helps with our close rate, but I also think it helps with our protection of, of core key values at Ignition. And you said that your culture is unique 
what are your values? What, like, what, why is it unique? We've got a couple that really sort of play together. So everyone has a customer value. Ours are we hero, the customer. Um, so we want to make sure we've always got them up on lights and thinking about them with everything that we do. Um, we've got, uh, we work without ego and, you know, I didn't necessarily dress up or down uh, for this interview as an example. I'm more interested in what you bring to work up, up here and out here every day as a human. Um, and I expect that everyone has an ego and that's not a foregone conclusion. They do not, but that when it comes to making a decision, they can have strong conviction, loosely also bring ideas and opinions, but will you know, disagree and commit, um, you know, listen to logic, listen to data and jump on with the best decision. And so that's really, really important to us. Uh, we are better every day. So always striving to make things better. Um, also bodes into how we invest in PNC learning and development for our teams and always trying to just think about how do we make something you know, better next month, next project, et cetera. Um, Last ones were smarter together. So once again, uh, boating back into that team piece, uh, yeah, we want to make sure the team comes first rather than an individual. When it comes to running a business, uh, someone, you know, it, it's a marathon, right? Have you ever wanted to give up? Uh, can you talk us through some hard times or some of your hardest moments? For sure. Um, I probably touched on this before. We had a pretty rough capital raise experience in the early days. Um, seems to have turned the corners. We've gotten bigger and you know, revenue and payments kind of came in vogue. Having a verticalized solution is in vogue. That wasn't always the case. Um, and so a few times, you know, breaking down in tears, trying to figure out how to, um, yeah, next month payroll. And as an accountant, that's super, super brutal because like you understand all the implications uh, around all of those things. So uh, particularly as we were getting we'd sign a term sheet and the round would take forever to close. Like those are the most heartbreaking moments because it's like, there's nothing going wrong in due diligence. So if you're not familiar term sheet, due diligence, final documents, legals, sort of closing period. Um, it's just typically that sometimes it can take a long time in between signing the term sheet and closing. And we found that to be true, particularly in our earlier rounds. Um, and so as a result, you know, not getting paid for three months, payroll, having a big borrow and steal of family and friends, um, you know, personal guarantees to actually make sure that we could pay everyone else but myself and my co-founder for three months. Um, yeah, things like that. Those are the those are the trying times, particularly when you know that your revenue is going like this and customers are going like this, and you're doing all the good stuff everywhere else. Um, but you're just almost out of cash. Um, but again, probably as an accountant, I feel I feel um that's sensitive to, to that being a potential reality. Happy to say that hasn't happened in a number of years, but it happened almost every 12 months for about three years. Yeah. And thanks for being so open and honest. Um, how did you work through that? And, and how did you maintain your mindset not to give up? How did you keep going? Once again, so like uh, I find, let's say confidence, but like assurance in, in numbers and metrics. And I was like this given we had the term sheet, so it wasn't like we were pitching for money and this was happening. It was like chosen a, a, an investor. Uh, it's very unlikely the deal follows over from here. And I've always been, despite being an accountant, very risk forward, but my um, confidence that it would work and I guess where I found comfort was I'd look at where we were at last year. What were we doing? How many releases have we done? What's our NPS rating with our customers? Uh, you know, what partnerships have we just signed? And everything was always like up and to the right. 
always improving and saying that it's you know, month over month, but over a year, um, it looked great. And so I was comforted by the fact that I found people had my back because they believed in either me or the mission and the vision and were happy to support, um, but also that I, I felt like we were just making the right decision. It was just unfortunate circumstances around you know, closing times and funding or did too many rounds where the close date was like the day supposed to be the day after Christmas or the day before Christmas or the holiday period. If you're from overseas, it was just like, why and how does that happen? Um, and it seemed to happen to us on repeat. Um, so uh, despite perhaps signing a term sheet in like August, it's like, how did we end up here again? Um, and so those, those things were super, um, super hard to deal with. And, and you know, my co-founder was always there uh, with like, you know, helping to pick me up and dust me off. Um, but the the real, uh, I guess, support for myself came from family and, and peers and friends who were happy to kind of, you know, support us through that. Um, you know, obviously personal accountability on on the thing not working, but um, happy to sort of support us through that, that process and make sure we get there. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying this episode and learning a ton. As you know, in this series, we interview some of the greatest founders of our generation to find out how they did it. However, if you're thinking of starting your own business and you want to hear from some incredible stories from everyday people like you or I who are actually in the trenches, only been building their business for maybe one year or two years, like that are building right now and they're really in the early stages, but they're getting success, you should come and check out our new podcast, From Zero to Founder hosted by our community manager, Molly Flynn. These are in the trenches stories from our very own successful students that have gone through some of our programs. People just like you who are deep within the process of building their very own successful business. These are the founders of tomorrow. You can find the From Zero to Founder podcast on all platforms. And remember, it's founder without the E. All right, now let's jump in the show. Let's just switch gears. Like what's been some of the most fulfilling parts of the journey thus far? Continual growth, I think. Like the opportunity that's been bestowed upon me, um, if I think personally, is not something that many people get to experience. Um, and so, you know, A, other people's money is being invested into the company and despite all of that, um, having the team, the board uh, kind of allow me to grow um, and switch gears from a doer, which I would say I'm, I'm a scrappy startup founder. Like I feel like what I was good at was getting a business off the ground and, and the learning stage of scaling a business, A, something I never experienced or watched elsewhere, uh, but also, you know, requires a, a lot of development when you think about going from, you know, in 2019, I was still doing our bookkeeping, accounting globally, payroll, tax, you know, in addition to performance reviews, strategy, partnerships, like all the rest of it. And so I went from, being incredibly hands-on across a large number of things to hiring people to put those things in place. And then now it's the challenge of, you know, leading leaders. And so I'm super, super thankful to be here and to have that opportunity. And, and that's kind of what excites me now is like, we've got a great team. Um, we've got a great, great sort of um, board around us uh, as well as the ability. And I guess the privilege of being able to um, kind of continue learning and how to lead leaders and become a better leader. So, um, I'm very self-aware that, uh, you know, a lot of times at this stage you end up with a CEO who comes in who's done it before. And so to have everyone's support at this point is, is still great and I'm enjoying the journey and looking forward to the next steps. Yeah, that's a that's a interesting transition. 
because oftentimes when you're a founder CEO in the early days, you have the title as CEO, but you're not really the CEO. That's, that's true. And I think the, the big shift is once again, from a doer to like the accountability of everyone else bubbling up to you. And so it's like you on any given day, you probably used to be able to get in and change something like, you know, jump on the phone and call a few people and maybe close extra sales to get you to target as an example. Whereas now like you can't do that because the number is not two, it's like 20, you know, like you can't actually personally influence any particular thing on a given day uh, to drive a particular metric. Um, and so strategy and execution and leadership becomes a whole lot more critical. Yeah, I agree. Uh, personally going through a, a similar transition. So uh, now we're getting deep. So how do you find it is best to motivate others and drive outcomes through leadership? As I said, I've been candid. This is still development for myself, but uh, I'm, we were trying to run through like type of leader that I am. And I sort of hover across a couple of different sort of um, archetypes, if you will. Uh, but I would say that I trust first and, and then hope for an open dialogue because typically we've brought in someone who's an expert at the thing, whatever it is that they're leading. And so, yeah, I try to let them get up to speed and then we work on what, is, what does it look like from here on in. And I want to make sure they have the freedom to make their own calls and I'm there for commentary. And then I want to make sure they have the ability to feel comfortable bringing up when there's things that don't go to plan and feel okay with that because, yeah, strategy and execution are hard to align most people are assuming many, many things when they when they put a plan in place for the following 12 months and then things go pear-shaped and it becomes more about the, you know, how did you iterate or what was your hypothesis? So I'm big on hypothesis and outcome and how do you know it's working or not? And viewing everything with sort of an experiment mindset. Um, that tends to be, I think, how I lead. I'm sure there's occasions where that's not true, but trust first, trust the people you've hired. It's theirs to lose rather than to gain and make sure you can have an open and honest dialogue and allow them to experiment and fail as long as they understand the, like they went into something knowing what good looked like and then understanding why it did or did not work. Um, thankfully, you know, if you building a company is like making more right than wrong decisions, kind of what, kind of what it boils down to. So I want to make sure the team builds up the muscle around being able to make decisions, live by them, learn from them, and then consistently make more right ones over time. You talk about kind of making decisions. Let's talk about kind of the continual journey of learning, right? Like at Founder, that's what our whole platform is about, like really helping founders learn from the experiences from people that have done what they want to do. Um, so where do you learn from and what do you do now to seek further education to level up and, and help with your decision-making? I read a lot of blogs, which is probably not unfamiliar. Um, I'm not really big on, I probably can't get through a full business book end to end in one sitting these days. And so I tend to find that I get it from peers and very, very, uh, or even superiors as, as far as I view them, like people who've been there before and have been through this stage. And so I'm very lucky to have had um, folks that I've met or been connected to who are happy to jump on and spend time from occasion. I tend to find more from, those folks um, than elsewhere, particularly um, if I think about some of our shareholders. So, you know, every round that we do, we try and make space for, let's call them angels, but realistically it's like an operator who likes, perhaps likes myself, likes what the business is doing, 
and we can call on them and ask them when we're sort of stuck on a decision. And so those folks, super interesting. And I think it's always important to have like a couple of North Star companies. So for us, it's probably like a huge fan of Intercom, uh, which is a, I'm not sure if you've used it, but it's a yeah, messaging platform kind of shared with different lenses, either on marketing, customer support, et cetera. But it's all the sort of singular platforms, a singular customer point, but you can talk and happen otherwise. And I feel like um, Des and the team, they've done a phenomenal job building a core platform that can solve many problems uh, and have different angles and views and can be used in different ways. Um, and so learning from Des on how they think about product, product launches, um, you know, capital strategy, et cetera, is, uh, was great. Um, in the early days, um, I got to chat with founders from Zero and Zendesk um, quite a bit. Um, they were super helpful. And then I, I feel like the other company, which I don't, we don't know too many people at, but um, uh, Shopify for us is probably like a, a great example of, of a platform that changed the way that commerce was done for a particular, um, you know, I guess vertical if you like, but a particular set of industries um, and sort of stayed at that, that top layer platform and is global and international. And so tend to lean into a lot of that and a lot of VC and, and growth funds uh, articles, uh, particularly on verticalized SaaS, um, you know, Valley of Death, all those sorts of things. And I love stories. So um, uh, Ben Horowitz wrote a book called The Hard Thing About Hard Things. Um, and he's yeah, one of the guys from um, Andreessen Horowitz. Uh, and I really enjoyed a book that didn't paint everything out to be rosy. And like the, the personal challenges and ups and downs you have to go through to build a, a big company, which you did before starting uh, the fund with Andreessen. Um, so for me, tends to be people who've been there and done it before. And like I said, I like stories and biographies and I tend to find I learn leadership a whole lot more from um, hearing people talk about people issues at conferences. Uh, so I went to one in, in Sydney not so long ago and they had um, Ariana Huffington dial in. They had, um, oh, who else is in the mix? Just a whole bunch of amazing folks. Um, uh, like the Australian female cricket captain was there as well, uh, Healy, uh, and like just a bunch of folks who talk about um, how difficult it is to get a team aligned and together and how to get everyone on the same playing uh, field. Um, whether that's in business or in sport in this case, and how how important it is to leave ego at the door and how they go about trying to humanise everybody so that people can have vulnerable conversations and how powerful that is. So they had the former uh, All Blacks coach up there as well um, at the same time, and it was just super inspiring to hear that, you know, a lot of what you're trying to figure out how to do, you know, even at the pinnacle of whatever the organisation is or sports team, um, that that is available and, and sort of like the same tactics kind of apply. So trust is a huge thing inside an organization as it is in sports. Um, so I tend to find those things where there's a relatable example, whether it being business or sport, um, helps particularly well for me. Um, and then the peers or superiors, depending on how you view them, are for the other side. And, and then our board has been super helpful along the way. Um, so just feedback, benchmarking, uh, looking at the data as opposed to just a quick personal answer. Um, and actually digging in to help solve the problems that we've got. And so I tend to learn from those sort of three different aspects um, as opposed to perhaps traditional reading books. Yeah, no, that's great insight. And it's funny, basically every single one of those founders, 
we have interviewed on the podcast and the magazine, like like Des, Harley, like, like yeah, it's crazy. Um, ben, big fan of Ben's books. Uh, yeah, incredible. Uh, so that's awesome. And I'm curious, so you're getting a lot of insights, right, to level up, to learn to make better decisions, but how do you – how do you know which are right and which are wrong and which to come back to? So much opportunity now, like as, as you know, practice ignition has got bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, in some ways, the stakes get bigger, right? You're playing with more dollars. You're raising more funds. Uh, you know, you've got a board now. Uh, you're getting incredible insights and experiences from your board and, you know, peers as you talk to. Um, and you've got data, but like, how do you, what, what does your decision-making process look like? Thankfully, we've now got a data team. We've got, as you pointed out, we've got more data, more, more insights across the board. But uh, before it was like, uh, typically, you know, here's top level data. We, we don't think we've got time to go a click deeper and making a decision. So now um, I'd say we slow down a bit on the pace at which decisions are made as, as companies do as they get bigger, um, which is sometimes a good thing. Sometimes it's a hindrance, um, but what we found balance in is, is what is the size of the opportunity? Uh, if we're thinking about something with the business, uh, you know, what are the risks if we don't do something? And we've got a really good relationship with our sort of top leadership team on the ability to kind of bring everything together and not that it's always a democracy, but to hear our key stakeholders views and therefore turn it around. So we have, we make decisions on certain things weekly, SLT, monthly with monthly business reviews and then board meetings are every quarter, but we have board call every fortnight. It's every two weeks. And in that mix, we are able to sort of still move at pace um, as well as one-to-ones with my, my direct reports, which is majority of the senior leadership team every week. And so I tend to find the cadence is great because we've got all these people that bring me the data and the insights and it's, similar it's almost like a SWOT analysis each time strengths weaknesses opportunities and threats like is there any any reason why we shouldn't do this what are the upsides if we do um uh and then you know i'm a numbers guy being an accountant so guilty is charged like what is the economic output of this um and that could be measured in many ways it could be internal emps right like we, we do something because it's good for the team and we think it will help retention it's just as important as we do something and we, we improve our margin on payments or we, you know, we might land an extra 200 customers. Like all those things are, um, are there. And once again, I think when we were talking before, like that whole thesis around, uh, sorry, a whole, whole purpose of having a thesis around what does the good, bad and ugly look like and what is my hypothesis and then learning from why. So decision-making tends to have the data, tends to have a qualitative view and then, you know, what happens if this goes right? What happens if it goes wrong? I think we're probably more focused these days on like how big is the wrong bucket? Like does that outweigh the, because I don't want to be, I don't want to be risk averse, but if it's like if the wrong bucket is we could lose faith of the team as an example, or we could, uh, you know, piss off all of our customers. And apologies if that's too vulgar uh, for this audience, but like if, if that's where we up, then we won't that thing. Um, and so yeah, I think it just depends on how big that risk is to us as a company. Um, we tend to focus more on the upside, but the, the risk would be, be the reason that we don't do something. You talked about that journey that you're on from founder to CEO. Um, how do you balance that desire to be in the business with the need to run the business? 
I think the, the upside for myself would be I had a similar experience doing this at my last company. So it's now called Sendar, but interactive accounting. Um, when I decided I was going to launch Ignition, I had sort of buy-in with my then business partners. I prefaced it as they jumped on board with me that I wanted to run a software company at some point. Um, and part of that process being okay with handing things off and, and having that trust and allowing people to kind of be all right with failing. So I feel like a lot of founders, it's not that you don't trust other people. You just maybe you get impatient if people don't do things the way you do them and or perhaps they don't hit the results on day one, as an example. I think the, the biggest thing is to feel comfortable with the fact that it will, will probably end up better than the way. So I always view that I'm a great jack of all trades, as most founders are. There's probably a couple of superpowers that each person has, right? And over time, you get to hand off the things that you're just perhaps good at and get to focus on the things that you're great at and then build in maybe one or two other skill sets as the company scales. And so for myself, um, I was super comfortable with that notion that I can't be brilliant at everything. Um, I definitely didn't have the ego of that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I meet people smarter than me every day. My, my goal has always been to be the dumbest guy in the room. Um, because if that's true, that I'm getting the best insights to make the best decision. I might be the best generalist, but the dumbest person in any particular uh, yeah, area of, of focus. And so for us um, and for myself personally, the, the biggest thing was just being comfortable with allowing people to make those failures and also comfortable with the, the fact that I was going to stop doing and that my job description has changed. And by doing that, focusing on how to lead leaders, I'm actually helping people uh, have greater impact as they build orgs for themselves to do the things that we need to, do to run a successful company. And I feel like that realization that, you know, if I try to do everything myself, then and I break, the whole company would fall over. Um, and that probably scares me way more than, than perhaps losing something that I actually enjoyed doing. You know, good example would be, I used to book all of our travel uh, and logistics for the team and, and organize all of our marketing in-person events. And, I'm not the best travel agent, definitely not on the best marketing event planner. I have no background in any of that. Now it runs seamlessly and it's super pragmatic. It's organized. They have better metrics than I ever had. They have better systems. But, you know, on day one, that wasn't the case. But, you know, a couple of years later, it's like it's a whole different beast that runs super efficiently and is a whole lot higher quality than what I did it. So I feel like I've had enough. Like that starts to happen to you. And as a doer or someone who likes being hands-on, you start to see that play out and all of a sudden your confidence builds around this is so much better if we get more scalable and hire and smarter people that own this thing. Yeah, no, that's an incredible insight. And it's great that you've come to this realisation. And I think that's really helpful for people that are listening and watching. Before we move to the hot seat round and work towards wrapping up, did you have any other final advice for founders from all the experiences and lessons that you wanted to share? Particularly if you're, you're in Oz, um, in Australia, rather, and, and if you're looking to go global, internalization is super hard. I think it's also, I'm not sure the way we did it is necessarily the best, but definitely learning about those markets before you just decide you're going to launch into the UK or pick a country and you know, hiring 20 people and just expecting it's all going to be the same. Um, I feel like that's a super key learning for us. We got a bit chastised about our global approach early on, um, but it's ended up being part of our secret sauce and part of our winning strategies. We're not trying to say that we're going to go build a massive business in the US and drop $20 million on a land and expand strategy. We've been growing slowly and waiting for the market to be right and then we can pile in behind it. Um, and, and so that's worked really well for us. Um, 
I think understanding your business model, I think Christoph Yance's uh, content around, you know, how do you build a hundred million dollar business? You know, are you selling elephants or mice? There's kind of many different ways you can skin a cat around that, but understanding the business models that you've got, uh, how that pertains to your future growth goals um, and probably the alignment of that with folks that perhaps you may want to invest in your company. And partnerships, I feel are great, great for underwriting brand recognition specifically, can be really good commercially. Um, but I always, I think one of the learnings for myself is uh, you can't control someone else's organization. You know, you could sign a deal that in theory underwrites your whole growth plan, but unless you're in on the other side running that team, um, they have other competing priorities on a day-to-day. So um, I always just take that with a grain of salt. I love partnerships. because I think it's so much better to do business together uh, and achieve and help a common customer. But I always feel like um, that's there. And I'm, I'm going to preach uh, for my, my brethren, have a great accountant or a numbers person. You might understand your business model, but margins are super important. Cash flow, cash burn, uh, how you go about hiring, CAC, LTV, or unit economics are kind of all numbers um, and a data person. Um, we probably got data in as a dedicated function a little bit too late, um, just given all the insights we're generating now. Um, and I'm sure I'm probably sounding like an old fogey for the, for the new uh, the new the new breed and the new crop of of startups and scale ups coming through. Um, but I think it's just hugely important to understand your numbers more so to understand when things are going wrong and when things aren't working right than perhaps being able to brag or talk about key met- metrics in unit economics. It's more what do they mean? And sometimes um, financially literate folk are potentially better at the business realities, e.g., running out of cash. Um, versus uh, founders who are focusing on, as I do, on the top side, which is how quickly we're growing and those sort of operating numbers like customers and revenue under management or you know, GMV and those things. And it's really important to have those tied together. Lastly, remember, you can't build the company yourself. Like, you, I mean, you can build a very small one, uh, but it's really, really important to make sure you think about how you take your team on the journey with you. Um, I much prefer to have a smaller piece of a bigger pie and a big piece of a small pie. Um, and so I always think about like, you know, I'm in the software business slash FinTech and we have other operating costs, but um, I really want to make sure that we've got people along for the journey. So we keep knowledge within the business. We keep allowing people to expand, uh, but also that, um, yeah, we've got people who will bind together when things go wrong. And I don't know, that's probably it in terms of a hit list. Awesome. Thank you. We'll, uh, we'll move to the hot seat round and then uh, work towards wrapping up. So what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Um, I've really been drilled down on ICP and go to market strategy. So who is your customer and what do you do for them and how is that different from the person next to you? Um, drilled into me many times over when I was starting my first business. Really, really helpful. If you could go back to your first day in business and give yourself one piece of advice, what would it be and why? Be more patient. I think the the reality is, and you mentioned this at the top, uh, mar- marathon, not a sprint. Um, and so people who are entrepreneurs are typically like, I want everything done yesterday and I want to move three steps forward today. And I think the realisation that that might actually cause more damage than harm, but also uh, more damage than good rather. But I also think that the, the view is should be build something great over a longer period of time, perhaps than trying to you know, build something amazing that crashes out. Um, but that's, that'd be the particularly the piece of advice I would give to myself. What's the worst piece of advice you've ever been given? <laughs> no one will ever buy it. Like someone who's 
from outside of industry that we serve telling me that no one will ever use it. Um, so like, you know, give up. Um, no one will ever use your software. This is a stupid idea. Um, so I think it's not advice. It's more, it's like I put down, but like lots and lots of people telling me that things weren't possible um, and therefore to give up. And I just turn them away or that it'll never take off. What's something you've learned today? We were talking about a organizational structure piece earlier this morning for the company and the, uh, the opportunity sometimes like separating things. So like what makes sense and then the timeline of it, sometimes it doesn't all have to be at the same time. So a better way to explain that might be um, making a, a structural decision and you can actually step it out and you can split certain things where they don't make sense as opposed to listening to advisors around you need to have one way of doing things, um, whereas you know, thinking about what's best for the company and the people. Um, and so for me, it was really eye-opening sort of hearing how it would play out if we did it a different way, which no one, none of the advisors had talked about. So learned a lot around um, from our internal team on um, how things could be stepped out and done differently and perhaps achieve a better outcome. If you could have dinner with any entrepreneur, dead or alive, who would it be and why? And that's our last question. I'm probably going to have to say Ben Horowitz. I would not pitch him for investment. I'm just, I really, like I said, I really enjoy the book. Um, and I think they've backed some of the most amazing companies uh, over time as well. So I would really just be great to sit down and be a hip hop fan as am I. So I just, I just feel like I'd really enjoy the conversation. Um, I'd love to learn more about background and how he grew up with different cultures around him as that I, you know, I think there's just a probably more for a good conversation and, and probably real talk uh, for someone who I feel like I identify with. And Ben, if you do watch this, hit me up. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, look, thank you so much for your time. And uh, this was an incredible interview. Lots of open, honest, and incredible lessons shared. And uh, yeah, thank you so much, Guy. I was going to say, uh, if you're ever in town in Melbourne, feel free to uh, hit me up, mate. It'd be great to uh, go for a beer or a coffee. Sounds good. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Nathan. Hey, guys. I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content either start or grow their business which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in-depth on teaching a particular topic and I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.